Part two of Karl Marx an essay by Harold J. Lasky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two. Karl Marx was born at Treve on May fifth, eighteen eighteen, of Jewish parents who were descended on both sides from rabbinic ancestors. Neither his father, who was a lawyer, nor his mother seems to have had any special ability and Marx himself was the only one of several children who attained intellectual distinction. When he was six years old, the family was converted to Christianity, not, it appears, from any desire to avoid the stigma then attached to the Jewish faith, but as a result of that romantic idealising of Christianity, of which Chateaubriand was the most famous representative. It is not easy to measure exactly what influence this change had upon Marx if it later opened to him avenues that would otherwise have been closed he never availed himself of them to the end of his life he remained something of an anti-semite but this does not seem traceable to any emotion of apostasy marx's childhood was passed in the normal atmosphere of a patriotic lawyer's life his father was a zealous prussian to whom the defeat of napoleon offered the opportunity of which his son did not take advantage of a lyrical hymn to Prussian victory. He went to the grammar school of his native town, where his ability was immediately marked by his teachers. There, too, he was intimate with the privy councillor, von Westphalen, whose house was a kind of salon for the intellectual youth of Treve. At least Marx learned there a love of literature, and the dedication of his doctor's thesis is testimony to his grateful regard for his future father-in-law for even before his departure in 1835 to Bonn University, he had become secretly engaged to Jenny von Westphalen, whose beauty and strength of mind had awakened in him an affection which did not diminish through life. Marx remained a year in Bonn, studying jurisprudence, but he seems to have devoted himself to the more convivial side of the university, and it was not until his removal to Berlin in 1836 that he threw himself into intellectual work. Berlin was then at the very height of its reputation, and the influence of Hegel was still paramount in its instruction. No sort of learning seems to have come amiss to Marx. History and philosophy, geography and jurisprudence, literature and aesthetic, all of them aroused in him the typical enthusiasm of an undergraduate in search of omniscience. Nor, it is a grateful thought, did he fail to write poetry, and if his verses are a fair index to his state of mind, he was full of a restless insatiability for knowledge and a zealous desire to solve the problems of the universe, from which at least there must have been derived many hours of happy work. He tried his hand at composing philosophic systems. He attempted to compile an outline of jurisprudence. He went hardly at all into society, and it was not until the winter of 1837 that his experiments resolved themselves into a settled system. He surrendered the neo-idealism of Kant and took refuge in a complete acceptance of Hegelian metaphysic. That this change represented for him a very real mental crisis is evident from the passionate, if turgid, letter to his father of November 10th, 1837. There he summarises the intense struggle through which he had passed, the desire to dive into the deeps of the ocean, bringing up chased pearls into the sunlight. He was ill and troubled. His poems and short stories were burned. He sought escape from the seductions of Hegel in discussion at the Graduates Club, only to find himself the more securely enmeshed therein. 
it is the typical intellectual history of an ardent mind conscious of great powers and eager to secure a foothold from which to survey the universe not unnaturally it greatly disturbed his father he good man was anxious above all to see karl at work in a lawyer's office or even better in government service why did he not do as other students attend his lectures meet the right people and embark upon his future career he did not understand this mental torment save to see that it involved physical ill-health and a good deal of miscellaneous reading totally unconnected with the law but marx's ideals had already passed beyond so pedestrian an existence and his father seems to have reconciled himself to the new ambitions marx determined upon a university post and for that purpose devoted himself to the study of philosophic jurisprudence with friends like bruno bauer and friedrich koppen he buried himself in study and discussion a thesis was written on the philosophical systems of democritus and epicurus and in eighteen forty one marx became a doctor of the university of jena he rejoined bauer at bonn and awaited the offer of a lectureship in the university had that offer come the history of european socialism might have been very different but the prussian educational system did not look with affection upon eager young men whose views did not square with orthodox teaching the post did not arrive and it was shortly enough obvious that it was not likely to arrive an academic career being thus impossible marx set to work to find a living in journalism and in eighteen forty two an opportunity of an attractive kind presented itself the first number of the rheinische zeitung was published on january first eighteen forty two and marx was a warm friend of the editor who had met him at the graduates club in berlin invited to assist he wrote philosophical articles which not only brought him to the notice of a wider circle among whom were men like feuerbach and moses hess but also secured for him the direction of the journal on the retirement of its first editor in the next october thereby marx was compelled to deal and for the first time with immediate political issues he came into contact with french and german socialism then in their utopian stage the agrarian problem in the rhine provinces and the discussion of the tariff gave him the first stimulus to investigate economic questions french socialist ideas were already being discussed in the paper but marx as always determined upon a thorough grasp of the issue did not as yet pronounce upon their worth an editor who takes time to make up his mind is obviously lost and the directors of the paper decided to make a change in its management marx who had just married seems to have resigned without regret and to have buried himself for the next two years in those economic studies from which he emerged a socialist of the inner history of those years we know practically nothing certain alone it is that as early as may eighteen forty three he detected within society a breach which the old system cannot heal and it was not long before he showed in his letters an intimate knowledge of fourier proudhon and cabet already he had done with utopias the problem was to explain the struggles and yearnings of the time in the winter of eighteen forty three when he had settled with his wife in paris he wrote the introduction to hegel's philosophy of law which remains perhaps his profoundest piece of technical criticism already he was thinking in terms of revolution and insisting that the task of the proletariat 
was to free itself from the existing social order poverty he viewed thus early as the artificial product of a bourgeois society and the denial of the right to private property had become for him the fundamental avenue of release but we catch glimpses only of this time all that can be said with certainty is the fact that reflection had made him a socialist he had realized too the inadequacies of the abstract remoteness of french socialism he had seen that the political state was at any given time the reflection in structure of the ideas of that epoch he had realized that the main need was to make plain to the mass of men the implications of the state and the end to which their half-conscious struggle should lead them his thought indeed was abstract enough and still fettered within the narrow walls of the hegelian dialectic but at least it was moving forward meanwhile the problem of how to live had still to be solved he had gone to paris in october eighteen forty three to become editor of the franco-german yearbooks but that periodical lasted only for a single issue and for marx its chief importance was the appearance therein of a long and frankly bad article by friedrich engels on political economy the article led to correspondence between them and in the autumn of eighteen forty four engels went to paris to visit marx that visit was the commencement of a friendship which even death did not terminate friedrich engels was the son of a rich manufacturer in the rhineland his father owned a cotton mill near manchester to which in eighteen forty two engels had been sent to study english business conditions he was already an eager critic of social conditions and how carefully he observed the life about him his condition of the working classes in england in eighteen forty four which he published in eighteen forty five bears witness a sympathizer with the chartist movement and a contributor to owen's new moral world he was exactly in the frame of mind to be receptive to marx's ideas and his personal qualities admirably fitted him to be the complement of marx thoroughly loyal without an atom of personal ambition generous and self-effacing practical and energetic he brought to marx all the necessary characteristics of a fidus Achates. his unstinting literary assistance hardly less than his constant financial aid were the materials which determined marx's future career it is indeed almost impossible to disentangle the labours of the two clearly enough it was to engels that marx owed both his knowledge of english blue books as a source of economic theory and his introduction to the work of the english socialist school without engels too it would have been difficult for marx to undertake the research to which the first volume of the capital bears witness and the posthumous publication of the two latter volumes was the tribute that engels paid to the memory of his master that marx would have been an important figure without engels is clear enough but the aid rendered by the latter made all the difference between the comparative calm of london and the restless wanderings of which hapless exiles like bakunin were the miserable victims the sudden end of the franco-german yearbooks made marx turn to more solid production the holy family eighteen forty five is important not only because it contains the first clear outline of the materialistic conception of history but also because its attack on bruno bauer is evidence that marx had already broken with the young hegelians he had come to place all his faith in the significance of mass movements where bauer believed that the ideas by which mankind is moved 
cannot hope for more than superficial understanding from the mass and depend for their success upon the efforts of great men simultaneously also he was answering ruger's attacks upon the german proletariat with an impassioned defence of socialism and revolution weitling is held up as a proof of proletarian virtue against the mediocrity of the political literature of the german bourgeoisie and in the polemic against ruger it is insisted that the time for political revolution the only revolution of which the german bourgeoisie is capable had passed the capacity of germany is the capacity of its workers and it is to a social revolution that marx directs attention this paris period is important not only for the advent of engels mingling with the german workers then living in paris marx naturally met those who were already in sympathy with his own views from them to proudhon was a natural step for proudhon was already the dominant socialist influence in france proudhon was interested in the hegelian dialectic and he and marx spent countless hours in discussing its application to social science but this fruitful intercourse was interrupted by his expulsion from france january eighteen forty five at the demand of the prussian government marx went from paris to brussels where he remained but for short intervals until the outbreak of the revolution of eighteen forty eight engels gave him a selection of his library and marx devoted himself to the composition of his singularly able and unpleasant criticism of proudhon this was published in eighteen forty seven and it may be said to mark his transition to the full vigour of his matured philosophy proudhon's reputation as a social philosopher has undergone an interesting reconstruction in our own day as an economist he has hardly survived the analysis of marx a self-taught man originally a printer he came into prominence by the publication in eighteen forty of his prize essay what is property in which with much brilliance of style and no small genius for paradox he repeated in the economic sphere the substance of those criticisms of social organization which rousseau had expressed in a prize essay not less famous but proudhon's aspirations were not limited by his knowledge with undoubted ability and with a real gift of social insight he yet lacked that rigorous training in the method of intellectual inquiry without which the production of a logical system is rarely possible discovering the work of hegel he attempted an interpretation of social life in terms of the dialectic it is broadly a mass of ill-arranged jargon with some brilliant asides but the work was written while in contact with marx and the philosophie de la misere is the exposition of exactly that type of utopia mongering which aroused marx's anger it depended for its success mainly upon the unconscious ease with which it determines the most complex economic problems and the reckless certitude of its own conclusions it is indeed at the same time a very attractive book proudhon realized not less keenly than marx the evils of capitalism and he was not less anxious to point the way to an economic order of which the motives were freedom and justice in the du principe federatif and the justice dans la revolution indeed he outlined a type of federalism of which the suggestiveness is immense and it would be legitimate to argue that not the least significant source of the ancestry of guild socialism could be traced to his writings but the conflict between marx and proudhon was an inevitable one at bottom the ideals of proudhon were those of a peasant socialism 
in which the authority of a central state was reduced to a minimum he was reformist in outlook despite the vigour of his phrases and his economic views were always subordinate to certain ethical assumptions marx was the typical representative of the new industrialism and the source of change for him was solely to be traced to developments in industrial technique authoritarian and materialist in both outlook and temper there was no real contact between proudhon and himself marx moreover was a trained scholar to whom the luxuriance of proudhon's speculations was never an adequate substitute for fact he was able without difficulty to show that proudhon understood neither the theory of value nor the process of production at bottom as he insists proudhon had done little more than urge first that labour was the source of value and next that riches and poverty coexist proudhon could see that the source of economic justice lay somewhere within the system of production but he could not with any clarity explain its development marx overwhelmed him with ridicule abuse and sarcasm and it must be admitted that from the standpoint of an economist right is on his side and marx's answer the poverty of philosophy is noteworthy also for its firm grasp of the economic processes of history and for his insistence upon the part that an oppressed class has always played in the development of any system founded upon class antagonism but the main value of the book consists less in any positive doctrine that it announces than in the atmosphere by which it is permeated it is definitely revolutionary and it is revolutionary because it is historical its lesson is the argument that social evolution implies economic revolution that was a new note to strike in the history of european socialism End of part two.